I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're On Pump. Welcome to On Pump, the perfusion podcast that helps you gain insights from the industry's leading voices. Today, we are featuring a very special guest, a renowned perfusion expert, Bob Groom, who is currently the Director of Cardiovascular Perfusion at Tenwick Hospital in Bowmet. We're really excited. We know you had a long day. We're already like super impressed that you took a look at our huge document and you're like, yeah, let's just do this at the end of my day. This is great. It's fine. We'll get it done. My pleasure. So how's your weekend been so far? Today we rescued a puppy. So that's been a journey. We're trying to find its home and that took up a lot of our morning, but it was a good thing. So how was your day, Bob? It was great. This afternoon at two o'clock, a team from Mayo Clinic arrived. Dr. Lyle Joyce put together a team and I know he's in Wisconsin now, but Paul Stensrud, you may know from anesthesia, he's here. That's awesome. And there's a surgeon, Elizabeth Stevens. She's probably new to Mayo since you were there. And anyway, this team arrived and we got them unpacked and we reviewed eight cases. So we're going to do cases this week. She was actually a fellow at Columbia when I was a student there. Oh, really? Yeah, she was great. Yeah. Easy to work this with. Is her first time here, and so she's pretty excited about being here. So we had a good afternoon reviewing cases, and then we all had dinner together. And tomorrow morning when we start, we do our first case, 13-year-old BSD. We're going to operate four days with them. So we reviewed six cases, a 22-year-old tetralogy patient, a little boy. Actually, not a little boy, a 22-year-old young man. So it's interesting. One of the patients has a crit of 72. Oh. 72. I think that's the biggest number I've heard of <laughs> in my whole career. <laughs> so. Yeah, Elizabeth, her eyes almost popped out when she saw the crit and said, yeah, that's the kind of patients we have here. Severe cyanosis. And these are defects that in the States, we correct them when they're three months old or four months old. And these kids wait and wait and they're cyanotic their whole life. That's incredible. That's a big deal. It's amazing what you're providing for those patients, Bob. And I would love for you to say hi to Dr. Stensrud. It's been a minute. I really enjoyed working with him. And I knew Lyle Joyce and everyone on the teams. I My brain just went to a flashback. <laughs> of Mayo <laughs> and it made me really happy. So thank you for that. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll tell him you said hello. Thank you. I was just going to say, we can get started. I know you're probably exhausted from your day. You're an amazing expert. We can't wait to hear what your responses are. We are very curious <laughs> about asking these questions. The questions look great. You guys did an incredible job looking at some of the things I've done. And those papers and things that you had on the Google Drive were some of my favorite ones. I was really thrilled to look at some of those things. I was having those flashbacks that you were talking about. <laughs> With Stensrud and Joyce. And we really appreciate you sending your CV over. This is going to be like the first interview that we do where we're not quite as acquainted with the interviewee. We picked Dave on purpose because he was my program director. And then Amanda, Tiffany, and I have been working with on the ICBP. So those were like a little bit more in our comfort zone. So you're a little bit of a reach yeah. for us here. So we wanted to do it justice. And your career has been so unique. So I know that we wanted to talk about perfusion in Kenya, but Tiffany and I called each other quite a few times and we were really conflicted because we wanted to bring in those pieces of your career. We wanted to ask you a few personal questions and some of your reflection pieces, because I think it's so valuable to the next generation 
but we also didn't want to stray too far away from the topic that we settled on. So we appreciate that you're open to answering those questions and walking down memory lane a little bit with us. You know, Jerry Dobbs used to do a podcast. Did you guys ever hear Jerry Dobbs podcast? Did anybody told you about Jerry Dobbs? Jerry Dobbs was a perfusionist from about 1960, and he was out in Portland, Oregon. He worked with Albert Starr, and he did podcasts. He must have done them for six or seven years. He called it the voice of perfusion. And he interviewed a lot of old pioneers and just did the audio, just like you guys are doing. And I don't know who owns them now, but he died about five or six years ago. I'll try to find out who owns them or how you can listen to them. But it's very much an extension. What you're doing is very similar to what Jerry did to try to collect information from people in the field. I'll find a out how to get those videos, because I know you would really enjoy them. Yeah, we really would. That would be incredible. Thank you so much. Yeah, he was an incredible guy. I'll see if I can chase those down. So I'm just going to jump in with the first question. So in our time researching you and your contributions to the profession, we came away with a sense that it's impossible to separate your journey through perfusion from who you are at your core. We'd love to open with a view into who you are before delving into this adventure you've decided to undertake at this stage in your career to push medicine forward. It feels a bit surreal to me to actually be sitting down with you. You have such a big footprint in our profession, and this has been known to me since I first started my career about 12 years ago. I have read and cited much of your work, in fact, over the years, as well as had conversations with colleagues where your name is frequently honored. It's clear by your impressive CV that you offer up much of your time for this profession. And here you are, it's 2 p.m. in Austin, 10 p.m. in Kenya, <laughs> and you have been so kind to share your time for this Legends Podcast Hour. I see you have a Master of Science in Evaluative Clinical Services from Dartmouth, and you completed your perfusion education at Texas Heart Institute. Can you tell us more about your educational background and what drew you to perfusion as a career? Sure. So I'm originally from a small town north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about 15 miles north of Pittsburgh, or Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. And when I was in high school, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to go to medical school. And I was really interested in that. And I chose a small liberal arts college about 40 miles north of where I lived, called Geneva College, a small liberal arts school in western Pennsylvania, in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. I was a biology major, and I was on the pre-med track. And I struggled through college. I really struggled, had a very hard time um, with college. I remember I got a D in organic chemistry my freshman year, and it was really doubtful that I was going to make it through college. But anyway, I stuck with it and worked really hard. And about the end of my junior year, I started blooming. I started doing well in the science courses. I had a great advisor in college, and he encouraged me. And I finished college in 1977. I didn't have good enough grades to get into a medical school. And my advisor, Calvin Freeman, he had just started a school, just started this course of study with a, a colleague of his, a former student who was a corpsman in the Navy. They started a school 
called Life Support Technology in Fairfax, Virginia at Fairfax Hospital. And they started this new experiment. It was to train people to work in the cardiac cath lab and to work in the cardiothoracic surgical room to do intensive care unit monitoring and dialysis. It was a new concept, a new program. And I enrolled in that program. And when I didn't know what I was signing up for, but it sounded interesting. And I got there and it's just like everything really clicked for me. I loved working with equipment and I loved working with patients. And I did really well in the life support technology program. And while there, I met an incredible guy named Aaron Hill. And Aaron was, he was the perfusionist at this program that had just restarted its cardiac surgery program. And he was larger than life. And he was an incredible, influential person in our field at that time. And he became my mentor. And I learned from him that in the cardiac operating room, your job is to do whatever needs to be done to make others successful. So you help the nurses, you help everyone in the room, you help the anesthesia. We used to help anesthesia put the central line in. I trained at that program and subsequently worked there for one year. And then I went to perfusion school at Texas Heart Institute. So that was the beginning for me. I went from being a student that struggled in college to someone that really had a passion about the technology and was working with new things. While I was there, we got our first intraaortic balloon pump and I read that manual, practically memorized it and spent two or three days in the unit when we got our first patient and was just fascinated by the technology of the intraaortic balloon pump. And it was the beginning of a real love affair with cardiac surgery, being in the operating room and working with a team and trying to figure out ways to help patients. That's really incredible. And for me, I love that you segued into talking about your first position. And before I ask my next question, I just have to say that Dave did a presentation a couple years ago, a year or two ago, and he mentioned Aaron Hill and what an influential person that was in his career also. I feel really dismayed that I didn't have the opportunity to get to know this Aaron Hill. And Dave frequently brings forth his quote that Aaron instilled in him to us as students. And he always said that to be a professional, you have to be an active participant in your professional society. That was really where I started to get interested early on in volunteering for AMSECT and being a part of that and getting to know what that society really offers as as professionals. I really, I think that's the key. And Dave is a very good friend of mine, and just two weeks ago, we were at AMSEC International, and we were both part of the leadership symposium, and in one of the exercises, the instructor asked us, who is the person that influenced you, and Dave and and myself and one other person that had spent some time with Aaron Hill, we immediately, our faces just lit up, and we all three... thought of Aaron and things that he said and things that he taught us. And we had a leadership symposium for 
all the days and all the years that we worked for Aaron because he was that that kind of a person. And I'm impressed with both of you. I've researched you a little bit and <laughs> you're both participating in the society. You're both on committees and you're doing lots of things. And that's so awesome. And as you become mentors and you already have, I'm sure as you mentor people, that's one of the most valuable things that you can do. And I'll just throw out another icon in our field, someone that you've worked with, Tiffany, Jeff Riley. Yeah. Jeff Riley's mentor used to say to him all the time, Jeff, if you're not a member of your professional society, you're not a professional. And that was told to him by Jim Deering. And, and Jeff, a giant in our field here, if you look at Jeff, Behind him stands a great mentor. Mentorship is important, and it's great that you're involved in your society and, and that you're doing this. You're collecting history for people in our fields. Congratulations. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Thank you, um, Bob. It's just an incredible opportunity to also look at you as a mentor. I think Mel and I would both agree on that and learning from you in this instance here and hopefully following you know, what you continue to do with your career. We're really excited to see what you're doing with Kenya. We'll get to all that in this podcast. Your perseverance is definitely inspirational for a lot of our listeners. And we're so happy that you found your craft because you have just laid an incredible footprint down for our listeners and for people to learn from you. So thank you. I think Perfusion's very grateful that you struggled through organic chemistry when you first got to college. <laughs> that almost finished me off, really. I had doubts about my future. And at that time in my life, I was about 17 or 18 years old, my first year in college. I was born the 1st of January, so I started kindergarten when I was four. So I was one of those people that started early and maybe wasn't really ready. But going through at that time, reflect on that, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And it wasn't until I was 18 that I realized, you know, it was just above my pay grade to figure out what to do with my life. And when I reached this point, one time when I just said to God, what do you want me to do with my life? What should I do? And I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but you created me. You were there before I was born. And you put things in my heart and just show me the path and I'll take that path. And that for me was a big turning point in my life when I was about 18 years old. Wow. We're so lucky to be a part of remembering that memory. And I already feel like I could probably come to tears. I can imagine how excited you were after 18 years of age to finally find something, find a path that felt worthy and fulfilling. Yeah, it seems to be a commonality for the people that leave a, a really impactful path through our profession that they didn't really find and the profession kind of found them, chooses you a little bit. And we're fortunate that the profession does that with some people like Jeff Riley, like you, like Dave, like Ed Deering, because we wouldn't be here today as, as a standalone profession, a recognized allied health profession in the United States without you guys. Um, and that's not something that Perfusion has around the world. There are many countries where they're not recognized separately. So we're here off the you, backs of your work. I'm so glad you, you realized that, uh, how fortunate we are of those early people in our career or our field, the people like Aaron Hill and Jim Deering. We have this incredible 
profession, they laid the cornerstone and a lot of the foundation for it, and we wouldn't be where we are today. And you guys are carrying that on through your participation in the society and trying to provide good tools for your colleagues and continuing. So I'm really glad you recognize how fortunate we are. There are some that don't quite recognize that yet, and maybe more will as you continue your work. That's a great point. I think Tiff had excellent point here to get through about the medical journals that you've published and some more of those unique experiences that you've had that are a bit of an anomaly for our field. So I'll let her ask that question because she wrote it beautifully. So you have published extensively in perfusion and medical journals, including the American Society for Artificial Internal Organs and the Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery as well as contributed to book chapters. Can you tell us more about your research interests and what motivates you to publish? What motivates you in general? I think we caught a little bit of that in the introduction of this podcast. Thank you. That's a really good question. And I would say that early on, it was my mentor, Aaron Hill, that pushed me and involved me in the research projects that he was doing And he was the type of person that would tell you, yeah, you can do this and you should write this. You should do this work and you should present this. And when you're young and in the field to have somebody like that, that pushes you, encourages you and tell you, yes, you have value. You have something to share. For me, that was the beginning. And so when I was at Fairfax Hospital, I was there from 77 until 1980 as a cardiovascular technician. And then after perfusion school in 1981, I decided to go back there and work there. And between 81 and 96, I worked with Aaron Hill and he was very involved in the ACP. And I became involved in the ACP along with him. I enjoyed the meetings, going to the meetings and learning and participating. And for that first 20 years of my career, I was very involved in the ACP and made a lot of really incredible friends in that field and got to walk among a lot of giants during those years when I was involved in the ACP. I became president of the ACP in 2001 and just got to do a lot of incredible things. I was secretary. I was on the newsletter committee. I was on these committees just like you guys are today. I was involved in a lot of committees in the ACP and didn't miss one meeting during the 20 years from 1981 until 2001. I was always at that meeting. And the one thing about the ACP that I got involved with in about 92, I said, we present these great papers, we have these great panels, and we have this great discussion after presentations, and it gets published in the proceedings. And with Mark Carews, Mark and I forged a relationship with the journal Perfusion back in around 90 or 91, and Perfusion signed a MOU with the AACP. Every member of the AACP became a subscriber to Perfusion. Part of your dues went to pay for this special rate subscription that we had. 
And the arrangement was that all the papers from the ACP would be submitted to Perfusion for peer review. And then ones that were accepted would subsequently be published. And we were very excited about this because it took the meeting from proceedings where you might print 500 copies of the proceedings and there would be those 500 copies, but it wouldn't be indexed in the medical literature and it wouldn't be available broadly. So we were very excited when we were able to form that relationship with Perfusion then. And that was a big part of my early writing and early research was doing projects and presenting at the ECP meetings. And I was on the editorial board for Perfusion then. And those years were years that I did a lot of that. And quite frankly, didn't have a lot of training in research and in publication at that time. But through mentorship with Aaron and Mark Caruz, I worked at writing and improving my writing and skills. And it was 2003 that I applied for this master's program at Dartmouth Medical School in the Evaluative Clinical Sciences. And that school taught us to measure healthcare and to improve healthcare. And that was the main source that taught us how to evaluate the medical literature. We took a lot of courses in biostatistics and quality improvement and leadership. It was interesting for me taking the courses 20 years after I had written a lot of papers. And then, so it was like, oh, did I do it right? (laughs) (laughs) That just got me even more focused and more understanding about science and how to evaluate science and how to improve science. And around that time, around 2005, I became editor of the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology. And I was editor of that journal for 10 years, which was a lot of work, but an incredible opportunity because all the papers that would come to the journal, I would have to pick reviewers and I would have to also review those papers and make decisions on those papers. So it was an opportunity to learn a lot. So I gained a lot from my 10 years as editor of the Journal of Extracorporeal Technology. It was interesting. Manuscripts would come on a a three-inch floppy disk and they'd come in the mail, the U.S. mail, and the reviews from reviewers would come on paper. They were just eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that would have questions. How is the science of this? And so all this stuff was done on paper and it was just crazy back then. I don't know how we got anything done without web-based publishing and reviewing platforms that we have today, but it was a good time. It says a lot that your foundation was someone who believed and trusted in you, like Aaron Hill, having them as mentors, and then also being self-taught. Again, very inspired, and I'm jotting down my own mental notes. <laughs> yeah, it's really fascinating that when we talk about that upward trajectory that Perfusion took in the first 50 years up till now, the majority of it was done with a mountain of obstacles. Like you're saying, we didn't have technology the way that we have today. We didn't have email. We didn't have consistent Wi-Fi. Things came in disorganized. There wasn't a structure for it. You guys were building it as you went, and yet here we are 50 years later and the field is completely different than when we started where they plucked somebody anybody put them behind this humongous device right and you ran a case and maybe 
the pump clotted or things went wrong and then the surgeon got tired so they would sit behind the pump and the person who was running the pump would go to the bathroom and and <laughs> you don't see that today you don't see any of that yeah. today and yet even with all the technological advancements that we have, I kind of feel like we're plateauing a little bit in our field. I think people have lost that drive or I'm going to give like a little drop here from my next question, but how you said you have to really find your element. And I feel like a lot of people nowadays don't have that in the profession. I think these are challenging times. There's so many things that are begging for our time. And that in that way, it's more challenging. But as you pointed out, Mel, there are a lot more resources now and a lot more ways to get information and share information. So it's challenging. I think that there's so many things that pull at our time. And it's very easy to become just so busy that we don't have time for some of the professional things that some of us were involved with in the past. So I think that's part of it. I get so encouraged when I go to a meeting and I see people engaging and learning and still having that hunger to listen to the presentations and to seek out the presenter after after they present and to get answers to their questions. And it's still there. It really is still there. Our field is just an incredible opportunity because there's so many unanswered questions. There's, there's so many great things yet to be discovered. It's still available, but finding the time to do it and finding the purpose or the reason to do it. Some of the things I've published that I was really driven to publish were based on clinical experiences from 2005 to 2000. And I was involved in this big study. We created a model to count microemboli from the circuit and in the brain using transcranial Doppler. And we recorded data from the case. Every 20 seconds, we would get data from Levanova pump, the electronic system. And that study, it was six years. We looked at about 400 patients. And that study was driven by a patient that I cared for right after I got out of perfusion school. I was at Fairfax Hospital. And this is like my second year in the field working. And we had a patient. He was a dairy farmer from the Shenandoah Valley, and he was like 55 or 56 years old. And we did coronary surgery on him, and he didn't wake up after the surgery. And there's this speculation, he's not waking up, he's in the ICU for four or five days. And the anesthesiologist is saying, I think Bob did something wrong. And there's all this finger pointing going on. And that case had always troubled me. And then on an autopsy, we found all these athroma, this material in his brain. And right above the cannulation site, there was a plaque that probably after we cannulate went on bypass that just sent this shower of emboli to his brain. That experience in the 80s, um, when I had an opportunity to work with the folks at the Center for Evaluative Clinical Sciences with Donnie Lakoski at Dartmouth with the Northern New England Cardiovascular Disease Study Group, we set up this model and we did about 350 patients, and we learned so much. But that was driven by 
a clinical experience where something bad happens and you want to understand why and you want to understand how to make it better and you want to understand what can be learned from that. Another publication from around 2001 was actually a technique paper called Pronto. It was a way of rapidly changing out an oxygenator without coming off bypass. And something can be done by just one person, one perfusionist with one clamp and one pair of sterile scissors and one oxygenator. And we published that technique in 2001. And that was the result of a patient in 1998 that died at our center in Maine. We had a failed oxygenator and we learned that our team wasn't quite prepared. The anesthesiologist started ventilating the patient. The clamp was on. <laughs> that wasn't going to do anything. And the surgeon wanted to give another dose of cardioplegia and finishes anastomosis before we changed the oxygenator. And this patient, she died and it was horrible. So we wanted to make her death count for something. And so we developed this technique of changing an oxygenator. It can be done in 90 seconds. And we made her death count. We made it count for something good because that pushed us to, to find a way of making it possible for this to not happen. And just three months ago, I get this email from a guy in Turkey who said, hey, I used your technique <laughs> this week and we had an oxygenator failure. And I just think, woohoo, <laughs> you know, what a great thing. And I think that to answer your question, that's something that gave me that drive. And you guys in your careers and those who listen to this video, if you come across a challenging case or a serious problem, make it count, make it count for something. And you can learn from every single patient, every experience that you have. That's what we learned in the evaluative clinical science course is that every single case is it's an iterative process that we learn to improve by learning from every single case and every case. We developed registries in Northern New England and where we had every single patient that had surgery at eight centers in New England, and we collected all this data. We came up with prediction models for survival and renal failure and stroke. And we could really inform our patients then that out of 100 patients like you, just like you, eight of them will have a stroke. So you need to understand that you have an 8% of having a stroke based on your pathology. And so you give patients a really informed consent. And that was a really a great thing that we learned in New England from learning from each patient. And so we can all participate in things like that. And we can all learn to make care for patients better using registries like the PERFORM registry. The PERFORM registry, actually, a large number of those questions are very similar or identical to the questions and information we collected in our registry in New England. That's a very powerful tool, Bob, that you offered to people because at the cost of one life, it probably saved a lot of others and continues to do so. Yeah. And I was going to say that I don't know how often you get people letting you know that they use these techniques or they've looked into the work that you've done, but that Pronto line was actually a presentation that was done my year in school. We had to 
pick a crisis and teach how to manage it. And the person who got oxygenator failure came in with an oxygenator from the sim lab and had created a pronto line and showed everybody how to use it. That was in my first year. And at my first position out of school, that was a major discussion that occurred with the perfusionists in a meeting. We didn't have a chief and often it was one person to a room and that was a huge discussion that was had like whether or not it was worthwhile to add a pronto line um, to the oxygenator to that circuit. It's very important now here, I'm in Kenya and we don't have liquid oxygen supplies like you have in the US. We have an oxygen concentrator that scrubs out the nitrogen gas and on a good day, on the best day, we have probably 95 or 96% oxygen. But on days when there are a lot of people on oxygen in the hospital, it drops to 80 or 75. And we use that pronto shunt in our circuits here. And it really comes in handy because we sometimes have challenges with gas delivery and we need some more membrane and it's easy to add it using that shunt. My staff here really like the pronto. We are more confident in the cases we do. We have to oversize all our circuits because we need more fiber, hollow fiber, to oxygenate a patient of the same size that you would have in the U.S. because our oxygen supply is so much different. That's fascinating. The survey that you were on with perfusionists in Kenya listed oxygenator failure as a frequent crisis that was encountered there. Those cases where you had a splice in a second membrane, did that count as an oxygenator failure or was that categorized differently? I think they were counted, but I think the only center in Kenya now, there are 10 centers in this country. I say 10 centers, but really some of the centers only do 15 or 20 cases a year. So it's very infrequent. And we ask that question about failure. We ask those questions because we're in the process of developing standards and guidelines here, and we wish to have a baseline about what safety devices centers are using or what kind of accidents and what kind of things they're experiencing here. So I believe probably a lot of those failures were due to maybe inadequate gas supply. But it's hard to say because I think of the 10 centers here, maybe two or three have any inline monitoring. I'm venous saturation probe. I think there's two centers that have a venous saturation probe. We do not have the luxury of a lot of the technology and choices in the more developed countries. There are only about 1,500 cases a year done in this whole country. So thus, companies do not market their, there's just not a big return. You sell auctionators here and you're, the most you're going to sell is maybe 1,500 or 2,000. We have a limited choice in the auctioneers we use, the limitation in supplies that we can get. And actually, none of the companies have a presence here. They all work through distributors and the distributors market their products here. And there are a lot of things we can't get. One of the things I, that it's difficult for me to get here in Kenya now are level sensor pads here. So every time I come to the U.S., I bring a bag back with me. <laughs> but now we can't get level sensor pads. So things like inline monitoring are just not available here. And I think we're the only center right now that I have a Viper. I have an old 
M4 monitor from Spectrum that was donated by Spectrum. And it just changed our life here because we could have all the gases and calculations of oxygen transfer and flow probes and gas analysis of the supply. That monitor has just made two years ago, I was able to bring that here and it just changed our life here. We know that we're only getting 85% gas out of the wall. We don't have to run down the hall to the monitor in the hall and look at what the oxygen concentration is. That's the challenge. And the other end of it is when you're putting together a circuit here or when you're planning surgery for a patient, our patients here have a very low socioeconomic situation compared to the U.S. Many of the patients we operate on, their earnings are about $4 a day. You can just imagine what the cost of a cerebral saturation monitor is. That's over a month's salary. It's fun because you figure out what the most essential things are that you need and how to make it as safe as you possibly can, yet affordable and so that many people can have surgery. Our charge to patients is about one twentieth of what a patient is charged in the U.S. We have to be very careful in what we choose, and we have to think of ways of monitoring and making it safe. The Spectrum monitor is an excellent monitor for us because as you know, the disposables that go along with that, once you have that capital equipment, if you take care of it and it lasts a long time, a piece of equipment like that is just a gem here. I wonder if there's room, I'm not sure how it works in the U.S., but for centers that are moving away from those Vipers, replacing them maybe with the new Quantum, if there's an opportunity there for them to donate the old Viper systems and somehow get them over there for you guys. Oh, that would be so valuable to us here. We really struggle to get equipment. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about most hospitals here do not have the infrastructure of hospitals in developed countries. You have like cyclic replacement programs and you have preventive maintenance and everything gets a barcode and gets tested when it should be tested. And here in many of the hospitals in Africa, equipment gets used until it breaks. And then you put duct tape on it and you use it <laughs> until you can't use it anymore. And then there's no cyclic replacement. So then you may have to stop operating for a period of time until you can get that thing that you need. Our sternal sob broke here. So we had to use that re redo saw, that reciprocating saw to open the chest. And it was just horrendous to open yeah. the chest that way. And so we had to find replacement saws on, on eBay and find companies that reprocess things like that and sell them and eventually get it. But that's where we are. And Mel, you've hit on a really good subject that equipment is something that could really help in a country like Kenya. Then the next challenge is figuring out how to get it here. I think that's one thing that can be of a big help. Sometimes though, the help I get, somebody will say, oh, I've got these disposables and I'll send them to you. So I'll get 2,000 one half, one half, one half Y connectors. Or you get the connectors that 
those connectors that you use one in a year and then <laughs> just expire on the shelf. So it's, oh, okay. So then I have a lot of things like that. But we do get a lot of donated products. We do get a lot of donated equipment that is just really a godsend. And sometimes things come here and it just makes me cry when I get these things that we really need when they come through. It just really is true. We're working on a process of, of reprocessing things like cannulas through cold sterilizations using hydrogen peroxide sterilization system, low temperature sterilization system. There's a center in Egypt and they reuse their cannulas six or seven times using one of these Styrad systems. And there's one that just got in the country. I've been waiting for this thing for two years and it's in the country now. We're going to have it installed in a couple of weeks. So we'll be able to reprocess these cannulas. It was interesting to me that I was, the leadership symposium I was at a couple of weeks back. Um, people were talking about it. Yeah, we can't get certain cannulas and vents and things. And people were saying, like, we made a decision that we're going to start using that outdated cannula that just went out of date. They would hang you by your thumbs if you did that a few years ago. You used an expired piece of equipment. But to hear people in the U.S. thinking about those other alternatives. The medical device industry has done a tremendous job of providing us with really great equipment and a variety of equipment and disposables and things like that. But I just think that some of the standards on reprocessing these items and reusing these items are just, they're fabricated. They're not based on anything. That's my personal opinion. And when you think about all the medical waste and how things expire, I'm sure both of you, you've worked in busy centers. You've seen a heart made three expire. I have something to note on that. In 2015, I went on a medical mission trip with Children's Heart Link with Dr. Greeny yeah. and a few the other Mayo employees. I remember contributing the arterial and venous temperature probes to that group. And those were not cheap, actually. I was surprised at how much they cost and bringing over two pair of each item was a big deal for them. Then I also remember lugging two large suitcases of all the expired cannulas and connectors to contribute to their team, and they made good use of them. They had just recently expired, and the team had been collecting them, and it was actually a great thing to bring to their group. It's so true. The laws have changed in Kenya. You can't bring expired devices in anymore. But we do have the ability to reprocess some of these things. And the one thing I would say to those listening to this podcast is that when you collect all those things, make a call or send a message and ask if it's needed there before you send it. There's there's some things that are really needed, but there's some that you go to the expense of shipping it and it gets there and you may feel good. Oh, I donated that nice thing, but it was something that they didn't need. Now with modern technology, like this team that came, we had two Zoom meetings before they came and we talked about patients and we talked about processes and we talked about supplies that we needed. And so they were able to bring exactly the things we needed. And you've been on some trips, Tiffany, and sometimes you get there and you find you you brought just the right stuff. And then sometimes you get there and you say, ah. I wish I hadn't packed so many of these or those. Yes, I would love to go on a few more trips, that's for sure. 
even though it is scary when you get there and you freak out, where is this item that I need? I feel like that actually right now, just building a heart program (laughs) in Austin. So just putting the pieces together. I'm learning a lot from you here and look forward to more information. It's really interesting that this topic came up because Tiffany and I sit on a subcommittee for the ICBP and it's the Domestic and International Collaboration Committee. And we are racking our brains for a nice project. And wouldn't it be nice if we had that committee be an interface where people like you around the country, around the globe could send in items that you need and we have a list of that. And then people who have things that they're going to get rid of or cycle out could email us things that they have that they could donate and we could start targeting people to get them the things that they really need. That would be a really cool task force to start with you, Bob. Yep. I know the ICEBP is keen on helping programs or other countries to develop standards and guidelines and things like that. And I think that's a great thing. I know that you guys on the ICEBP are putting some energy into that and doing that. And that will be very valuable to developing countries because once you establish these standards, it really improves patient care. And it really gives the perfusionist in a developing country some people to stand beside them and say, this is the standard and we need to have these safety devices or we need to have this much staff or we need to have eight hours of rest after working 18 hours and those things. I think that the ICEBP and other groups in countries like the U.S. have a lot to offer I just finished writing a a curriculum for the perfusion school we've developed here, and I used the ACPE curriculum, their recommended curriculum, to build the curriculum. And what a great thing to not have to pull all those things together, but to have the value of years of experience of the people on the PBDC who have developed curriculums and the, the ACPE of putting together this template for developing a school. One of my colleagues in Aswan, Egypt, Mohammed Ashad, is starting a school and he's writing his curriculum and he's using the ACPE recommended curriculum as I am here to develop his curriculum. Those societies and groups you're involved with have a lot to offer. I was going to say, so you mentioned that you guys are building out the standards and guidelines there in Kenya, and this is not the first time that you have helped an international group build their standards and guidelines. So you were on a paper and you did help the Brazilian Society of Extracorporeal Technology build their standards and guidelines. And in the background of that paper, you talked about how there's a difference in the amount of autonomy or recognition that perfusion has in that country. And that really hamstrings the quality of care that they can provide because there's only so much that a surgeon or anesthesiologist can manage what a perfusionist is doing during the case without compromising what they have to manage as well. So could you talk a little bit about the differences between building the standards and guidelines in the Brazilian group versus now in Kenya, and maybe the differences that are needed in Kenya that maybe aren't needed in the United States standards and guidelines? That's an excellent question, Mel. Thank you for asking that. And standards and guidelines will be different for different regions because when you don't have the resources, 
we can't get level sensors for certain pumps. So you can you make a set of standard, do you have to have a level sensor? But if you can't get a level sensor, then how can you make that a standard? And online monitoring, like the CDI 500, the CDI products, they're not available in this country. Medtronic, I believe, has a saturation probe that's available, venous saturation probe. Spectrum does not have a presence, although there's a spectrum pump at one of the centers in this country. Medtronic has brought a spectrum pump in, I think a quantum pump or maybe a earlier version of the quantum pump. So you can't set a standard like that for a developing country. The Brazilian standards, it was amazing how they did that. I got involved in that in a really strange way. I was at the ELSO meeting in Baltimore. And after a session, the surgeon from Sao Paulo came up to me, Luis, I'll think of his name in a minute. And he said, are you Bob Groom? And I said, yeah. He goes, you publish a lot on safety. He says, we're having our first annual safety meeting in cardiac surgery. It's a multidisciplinary meeting in six months. Will you come? And I said, yeah, I'll come. And pretty soon I ended up presenting four papers or four topics at that meeting. But there was such a hunger and thirst for the topic of quality and talking about the non-technical skills and talking about how to improve safety and closed loop communication and how to lead against the power gradient and topics like that. And it was just an awesome opportunity to be there and to present at that meeting. And six months after that, they published standards and guidelines and they included me as an author. They basically took the standards and guidelines and they took the ones that they thought were possible to implement given their current level of resources. And so many of the things that we have as standards were started out as more of a guideline there. And over time, I think that they'll have more standards. But in Kenya, we can have a guideline about a level sensor, but to make it a standard today, it's not a standard that everybody could follow. But standards such as duty hours and standards such as policies can be implemented. But some of those ones that involve the use of a lot of technology, they just won't fit early on. But we can set it as a guideline and it can be a beginning. It can grow up to be a standard someday. Bob, I know your contributions are really appreciated in Brazil. I still have a lot of friends that I keep in touch with on WhatsApp there. And I know over the years, as I knew them in 2015, and I'm still friends with them now, that they have seen their profession become more established over the years, and they really appreciate that. So just having those friends and knowing what you did for them really means a lot to me as well. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed visiting them and meeting with them. And they're just, when you go to these other places in the world, there's such a hunger for information and they want to know how we do it in the West and developed countries. I spoke three times at conferences in Iran which was just an incredible experience. The first time I went there virtually, I was a little bit too timid to go, but I did do a virtual conference. Brian Lick helped us set up a link and he did the technology part the first time, but I went there in person twice. And the first time I think was in 2014. 
There were 1,800 people at this conference, including surgeons and anesthesiologists and perfusionists. There were two Americans there. I was there, and a surgeon from Rhode Island was there. We were the only Americans. So the perfusionists met in a breakout group, and there were probably 120 of them. And every single paper that was presented, I was asked to comment. It was just... How would you do this in America? What do, how would the Americans do this? So there's such isolation. And I would say to those listening, when you have those opportunities to go other places to do it, and don't be afraid to tell them the things that we've done wrong. Don't be afraid to tell them that some of the things we've done in using some of this technology, there's not really a lot of evidence that it does any good. If you have an opportunity to go to a place like that, go there with some humility and share with them the things that we've done right and some of the things we've done wrong. And one of the things I love about Kenya is that relationships are very important here and they're the most important thing. I'll go to work tomorrow and there's this whole ritual and we're supposed to start at 7 tomorrow, but probably a lot of people will show up about 7.20 or 7.30. They'll be there late. But that doesn't matter. We'll still go through this ritual. And it's, how was your night? How did you sleep? How was your family? How was your wife? And so there's this real connecting on a relational level. And it's extraordinary. It's very rich and it's not all about the work. It's about checking in with the people you work with and hearing from them about how they're doing and taking a genuine interest in their family and their challenges. And if they've had a death in the family, consoling them and encouraging them. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing about here. And it's probably getting better in the U.S., but when I was practicing in the U.S., it's like you get to work and you, you set up the pump, you get all your stuff done, and then you get coffee. You know, it was just like all business, and you can't spend time with the relational part of it. And I've learned so much from these people about that. A few years ago, we had this big pediatric case, and I was really worried about it. So I told the the CRNA, I've trained CRNAs to be perfusionists here, to get into my school here, the Tenwick School, you come as a background as a CRNA and you're trained from there. But this guy, Philip, I told him the night before, we got to get in at seven tomorrow and, and set up. So he comes in at eight o'clock and I'm just, I'm not thinking very nice thoughts about Philip. And so we get it all set up and we do the timeout and we always have somebody pray for the patient before we cut skin and they asked Philip to pray, and he said the most beautiful prayer for this young boy and for his family. And I felt oh, <laughs> I felt bad about the way I was thinking about Philip, and that the relationship part is so important. It's so important, and it makes the work tolerable. And life can be hard here, and having relationships makes it possible to endure. That really resonates with me. I think just transitioning into leadership and trying to be very proper about certain things and certain relationships. I feel like I do come as like a kind, empathetic soul. I, I like to connect with people. Some people feel yeah. like 
Don't ask about their weekend. Just continue on. It's Monday morning. Give them a motivational speech or get them on their way and just encourage that teamwork effort. And I love just being there for people and patting them on the back and saying they're doing a good job. And I think that is encouraged in my job. But it's just that touchy area of leadership and hospitals in general, I think in the US, what you pointed at. It's very important. We had a perfusionist that visited here four months ago and we start our day and the guys I work with will hug each other and we'll pat each other on the back and I'll be pumping. There'll be somebody leaning on my shoulders and I'll be doing the same. And this guy who was visiting a few months ago, he goes, yeah, you guys like each other. He goes, <laughs> I came back home. I'm not sure we like each other, but we have this kind of relationship here that I really love and appreciate. And it keeps me going. Yeah. I was going to say just because something can't be measured doesn't mean it doesn't make an impact in the operating room. And I think one of those really big ones is the energy of the room. Nothing good ever comes from a room where there's tension or anger or frustration. Uh, and I think that when you walk into a room and there's that sense of quiet calmness where people trust each other, but you don't have to verbalize it or you're catching each other and the little mistakes and you're that safety net for somebody else and you're sliding in and out of those roles and you just work like a well-oiled machine. I think it's indicative of one of those teams where people truly like working with each other, work well with each other. And it's like what you're saying, right? It makes a difference in the patient outcome. To start with a prayer, you're starting off with that mentality that this is a human being on the table. It's not, oh, we're 30 minutes behind or the patient was late getting in the room. Whose fault is it? So I think the energy in there is just really different. And before I even let you respond, I kind of want to take this opportunity because your John H. Gibbon Lecture Award was so moving. And I got goosebumps when you talked about finding your element, being in a place where your true talents and passions came together. But really the ripple that ran through me came when you talked about how you and your wife had this dream of going to Africa before you made it there. This was not a decision that was on a whim. This was a dream that you guys carried through your marriage for years. And I almost cried when I saw that piece that you talked about. When you looked at the 12-year-old boy that had rheumatic heart disease and he was in heart failure and you could see his heart coming out of his chest. And when he looked at you, you know, you saw that mix of desperation and hope in his eyes and you called home. And what you said was that you saw your uncle. Well, Mel, I'm afraid it's about that time. We've spent just shy of 60 minutes on pump. And I'd say we've gotten to the heart of the matter for today. Let's start weaning off bypass and continue this touching story on the next episode. Ahem, <clears throat> excuse me, bypass run of On Pump with Bob Groom. Please visit the World Gospel Mission website, www.wgm.org, and view our Bob Groom episode podcast notes to discover ways to donate to Tenwick Hospital in Kenya and be part of the movement in supporting a great cause. Thank you for joining us on this episode of On Pump, where we have had the pleasure of interviewing Bob Groom, a seasoned perfusionist. Bob shared his inspiring journey of finding his element where his talents and passions aligned. In addition to Bob's incredible career, we also learned about his astounding impact abroad and helping those in need. In the next episode of On Pump, Bob will be sharing his powerful story about his personal dream of moving to Africa and helping young patients with rheumatic heart disease 
a leading cause of incapacity and premature death in Africa. Bob saw firsthand the devastating effects of this disease and he knew he had to help. We have been deeply moved by Bob's narrative thus far. And as you have kindly shared your time listening to this special episode, we know that it has pulled on your heartstrings a bit too. So be sure to tune in for the next episode with Bob Groom. Thank you for listening. Hydrate, rest up, and return shortly for some top-notch cerebral perfusion on pump. That's a wrap for this episode, your source for all things perfusion. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.